This time on the Brothers Mysterium. Two of the prison warders took one twin in, just leaning like a plank or like a coffin, really. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff about ghosts and the paranormal, and this is a little more sort of fringe science. Now, twins often tell us those goosebumpy stories of what could be described as a telepathic bond. And she was so distraught, she actually threw herself off the top of the tower. If the legend is false, it's more than likely that the haunting it's connected to is also false. You're supposed to drive around the, the tower three times backwards, and if you do that, uh, a ghost is supposed to appear at the top of the tower. On today's episode, we explore the possibility of a psychic bond between twins, and then we examine a local legend, Devil's Tower in Alpine, New Jersey, and try to find the truth behind the lore. My brother and I have always been intrigued by the unexplainable. Like many, we're fascinated with stories of the supernatural, French science, and modern-day mysteries. Though we've seen no first-hand proof of its existence, our minds remain open to the possibility. Unsatisfied with the so-called evidence on television and the internet, we are choosing to take matters into our own hands and conduct our own interviews and research. Now we're on a quest to speak with as many people as we can and hear the stories of these events from those who have lived them. No Hollywood effects or exaggerations and no hidden agenda. We invite you to listen and decide what and who you believe. We are the Brothers Mysterium. Welcome to the Brothers Mysterium. This is Tommy, along with Eric. Heyo. Thank you for listening, as always. And today we're going to mix it up a little bit with this first segment here. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff about ghosts and the paranormal, and this is a little more sort of fringe science. Lately, I've been really intrigued by the concept of twin tuition, which is sort of this almost psychic bond shared between twins who are able to not necessarily use telepathy or anything like that, but feel sensations. If one's, you know, in trouble, the other one suddenly can feel it. If one is hurt, injured, or sick, the other one will sense it. Uh, so I kind of want to explore that uh, possibility. So it definitely goes beyond um, the usual twin conduct, so to speak. Because some people confuse this kind of thing with, like, twins' ability to, like, oh, we had a special language or certain things that only we understood. This is now taking it a step beyond all that. It is, and it's interesting you mention that because there are in interesting and intriguing twin phenomena, um, one of which is twin speak, which, as you said, where twins will develop, like, a highly complicated language that only they can understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> San Diego Union, July 5th, 1977. Do Grace and Virginia Kennedy really talk over life's complexities in a secret language of their own invention? Or is their mysterious speech an almost meaningless babble that only sounds sophisticated to others? Scientists have been baffled in recent weeks by the conversations of the pretty, black-haired twins who understand English, German, sign language, and a smattering of Spanish, but who for five years have spoken only in what appears to be a language of their own. Their conversations are unintelligible, even to their parents, Thomas Kennedy and his German-born wife, Christine, of San Diego. 
Alexa Romain, the principal therapist working with the Kennedy twins, believes that further observations and testing may disclose that, quote, their Jabberwocky may really be a comprehensive private language with a structured syntax, unquote. Um, there's also the concept of a twinless twin, which is when one twin will die in the womb before being born, and the other twin for their entire life, and the most prominent case of this is Elvis Presley. Huh. The other twin will always feel like part of them is missing and they feel lonely. And it's really interesting because it's not like, you know, they were twins and they were five years old and then one of them died. And now it's like you miss your best friend. You have all these shared right. memories. They never knew each other outside of the womb, but they sense it. And it's a big part of their lives. And they sort of always feel like something is missing. As babies, they may cry a lot about nothing. As toddlers, they may be afraid of being left alone, especially in the dark. As children, they may suddenly become withdrawn and feel a dark mood of despair or fear of death coming upon them for no particular reason. They may be described as moody. As teenagers, they may hide away, weeping for hours for some invented reason or really not knowing why. As adults, they may be plunged into a black dog depression that comes and goes with no apparent cause. The whole demeanor of womb twin survivors changes with their moods which can oscillate wildly between despair and joy over a short period of time. Huh. Um, but that could st still be classified as psychological rather than parapsychological. True. True. Yeah. Uh, and then there's many cases of twins separated at birth, living you know, on opposite coasts, leading eerily similar lives, almost down to the point where you know, there's two brothers. They're both auto mechanics. They both drive purple Chevy corvettes they both married a lady named joan uh they both you know are fans of uh something obscure like nascar well that's not that obscure but uh, whatever you know <laughs> meet jim lewis and jim springer they have different surnames and they don't look much alike but they are identical twins the jims were separated as babies and were reunited when they were 39 years old when the Jims met for the first time, they discovered that their lives were peppered with bizarre coincidences. My first wife's name was Linda. My first wife's name was Linda. I divorced Linda and married Betty. And then my second wife's name was Betty. And now I'm married to Sandy. Well, she's kind of leery that she hopes I don't ever come across her a Sandy. I got interested in the woodwork because uh, my father, he was always doing woodwork. Uh, I've been doing woodworking for quite a long time. My first son's name was James Allen. My first son was, was James Allen. My favorite beer was uh, Miller Lite, and I've always smoked Salem cigarettes. My favorite beer is, is Miller's Lite, and smoking, I, I smoke Camel Lite, but then I smoke Salem Lite, too. I, I switch back and forth. I was in the sheriff's department in Miami County as a deputy. I was a deputy sheriff for seven years. So then uh, two other interesting things that I'll just mention about twins, because they're sort of intriguing. One is the concept of mirror twins. And there's actually two different sort of definitions. Okay. One is like physical, where twins are literally a physical mirror image of each other. So if one has like a mole on their right cheek, the other one has it on their left cheek. And, you know, it hmm. looks like they're looking into a mirror. Okay. Which is interesting. Not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sort of a more kind of outdated and controversial psychological concept, which was mirror twins, which was basically that it's almost the evil twin idea. 
it's twins will one of them will decide to do everything opposite the other one in a quest to find individuality okay so it could be something like one's like very popular and the jock sports star so the other one will then purposely get lost in like books and be withdrawn and have a smaller circle of friends uh, and the extreme example is if one does great at school and one's you know a goody two-shoes the other one will then drink and smoke and skip school become a and rebel yeah right which is the evil twin he's the bad twin as it were uh which is they used to believe was like and maybe still the case was kind of a cry to be their own person or whatever but other people would argue it was like a genetic code where one oh one got the good stuff one's bad you know one's arnold schwarzenegger one's danny devito oh right or it's like both halves of the personality now split Exactly. Right. You may recall the idea of the good and evil mirror twins from a classic episode of The Simpsons. Who or what is Hugo? Bart, you have a twin brother. You see, when you were born, there was an irregularity. A monstrous irregularity. Ah! Ah. Yes, I remember Bart's birth well. Now, normally the birth of Siamese twins is a joyous occasion. But unfortunately, one of them was pure evil. Isn't it interesting how the left or sinister twin is invariably the evil one? I had this theory that... Wait a minute. Hugo's scar is on the wrong side. He couldn't have been the evil left twin. That means the evil twin is, and always has been, Bart. Oh, don't look so shocked. So there is a lot of weird things with twins that really makes you wonder, it makes me wonder, is twin tuition possible? Could it really exist? So, unarguably, I would say there is an obvious and deep connection between twins. Sure. Now, the question we're raising here is, does that go beyond the, the normal and accepted relationship or, you know, kind of connection you have with your twin to the psychic or telekinetic level? Exactly. And I have two uh, personal stories. We like to bring in our own stories whenever we can. The first one takes place in gym class in high school where I was a bit of a gym class hero. I went a little too hard considering it was just gym class, but it was fun and I would go all out and I enjoyed it. So we're playing volleyball one time and there's two twin girls great above me. One of them on the court opposite me, another one like three courts down. So somebody serves the ball. I'm playing up front at the net. I'm on fire this specific day. I jump up. I crush this thing, spike it right down. Wails this twin girl in the face. As soon as she's hit, I hear a shrieking sound. I turn and look to my right, and her twin sister is holding her hands over her nose, shrieking in pain. My head snaps back. The other girl has her hands on her nose where I just hit her and is shrieking in pain. They run towards each other and start hugging. Now, for a second, I thought, holy crap, I hit this twin, and that twin felt it, and my mind was blown. In retrospect, I realized there's a good chance the other twin just witnessed it happen and then just did the oh my god and put her hands over her mouth because she was shocked because I just blasted her twin sister yeah, in the face. Watched, which watched her sister get smashed uh, with a spike in the face. So that one is up for discussion whether or not that there was, I'll acknowledge there's probably nothing psychological, no twin tuition there. That was, she just watched me crush her sister's nose. The ball didn't ricochet, did it? Like you got one twin and then got the yeah, other one? God, I wish. That would have been, been awesome. Pretty, pretty badass. Um, but, you know, I did apologize. I felt a little bad. Not really, though, because it's volleyball time. So, you know, she should have uh, been ready for it. But yeah, yeah you got to be ready. So that one doesn't really count. But it, it when I was thinking about this, I, that story came to mind. And then a more prevalent one. Uh, as we mentioned before, we had uh, 
two elderly women as neighbors growing up. One of them had a twin brother who we never knew. And she would often speak of sort of her kind of psychic connection with her twin brother. Uh, I mean, not all the time, but she brought up enough that I remember it. And I wish I had taken notes or asked her more, but I was pretty young and I didn't realize I'd be doing a podcast, you know, 20 years later, whatever it is. But the one story that always sticks out in my mind is she said that she like woke up from a deep sleep and instantly was like, my twin brother's dead. And she like told people, um, you know, her other siblings and stuff. And everybody was like, why would you say that? That's messed up. And then it turns out that, you know, a couple hours later, they get a phone call. He had passed away at that exact moment. And she was right. He was dead. And she said she like immediately knew it. And she, I remember her saying like, you know, I, I know when something's wrong with him. I know this, I know that. So unfortunately she has passed away since then. I can't ask her about it, but it was sort of like, I mean, even her sister still alive kind of knew about it. It was sort of like common knowledge. Everybody's like, yeah, they kind of have that bond, you know, it's right. pretty standard. Yeah. Um, so that's something that always kind of makes me think that twin tuition might be possible. That's why I'm so twin interested in this topic. Oh man. Um, so I set out to do some twin investigating. Oh man. See how many of these I can jam into this thing. So what I did was I went out and I hit up seven sets of twins and I got all different kinds of twins. I, the first was two identical twin girls, then another set of identical twin girls. Then I did three sets of fraternal twins, boy and a girl, and then two sets of brothers, identical twins. I will now read some quotes from them upon me asking them, do you have any shared experiences, kind of twin tuition, psychic bonds? Can you sense things? The first twin brother said, not really. I mean, I know him really well where I could know his response to a certain question or situation, but nothing abnormal. The first set of twin girls said, we freaking never experienced anything like that, but I wish we did. I would love it. The second set of twin girls said, oh man, I wish. They said, we definitely can explain things to one another using very few words, maybe a couple of gestures. Um, we communicate really well. We're really comfortable around each other. Some people are uncomfortable with how close we are and how easy we communicate, but nothing to that degree. So, you know, what can you do, man? One set of fraternal twins said, nope, sorry, we don't get that special, mysterious science stuff in our genes. Hmm. Another one said, fraternal twins said, no, we never did. My mom thought we did, but she just eventually figured out when one of us cried, the other did too because we didn't want to be left out. Right. So when they were younger, the mom, I guess, kind of suspected that. Okay. Um, the last set of fraternal twins um, said, do you mean to ask if I have any paranormal occurrences with my twin that could be useful for your documentary podcast? No, I don't, though. Sorry. So busted, but I mean, I wasn't hiding that that's what I was. So then the only answer that was sort of an answer was from twin brothers. I went to college with one of them, and he said... Um, when I was in college and I broke my jaw, this guy kind of got sucker punched in the face. I was actually there and his jaw got broken. Uh, he said, my brother and I rarely spoke on the phone or anything like that. Um, we would talk on AIM for those of you unfamiliar. That was AOL instant messenger. Oh yeah. That was the precursor to text messaging. Yeah. Um, they would talk on AIM from time to time, but they could go weeks without talking on the phone. So that night, uh, after, the guy that I know got home from the hospital with his jaw in three pieces. He got a phone call. It was his brother at 3.30 a.m. just saying like, hey, what's up? Um, and then he was like, hey, why are you calling me? And he said, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to. 
Um, so then he explained that his jaw had been broken and what a crazy night it was. And he thought that struck him as being a little bit eerie. Uh, he did say, though, that was sort of an isolated incident. It's the only time that that happened. It's not like, you know, one of them broke up with his girlfriend. That one called him was like, is everything OK, man? You seem upset or, you know. Right. So I don't know if that is you need like a control and a variable. Yeah. For the most part, it would seem that the twin related phenomena are completely harmless. But there are always some exceptions. An extreme example that I'll just mention because it's definitely worth mentioning is the silent twins, as they were known as, June and Jennifer Gibbons. So they're two identical twins from Wales, and they had their own very in-depth twin-speak language that only they could understand. They didn't speak to anybody outside of their immediate family, and if they did, nobody could really understand them. Uh, and they were very odd, stayed together when they were separated. They would do everything together, even like motions and wake up at the same time. And they said they would play weird games where they would decide, like, if I wake up first, you can't breathe until I breathe. And like, you know, bizarre stuff. They were like a little too close. Their parents tried to send them to different schools to sort of get them to become individuals. And they both went like catatonic. And then the twins were brought in. And that was the most extraordinary moment. This is journalist Marjorie Wallace, recounting the first time she met the Gibbons twins. Two of the prison warders took one twin in, just leaning like a plank or like a coffin, really, on their shoulders. And she, they just got her in and she sat down and her eyes were downcast. She didn't move, her hands just hanging by her side. And then the second twin um, came in and the same thing happened. And they just sat there. So they brought them both together uh, and they're... They became like prolific writers, just like writing these books for themselves, not really even publishing them until like later. Like like fiction books? Yeah, like one wrote um, a novel about like a girl's adventures and stuff. And they wrote like tons and tons. They have journals full of stuff. So they would just basically stay inside, talk to each other and write. I saw their parents and then they took me upstairs and they showed me in the bedroom lots of uh, bin bags uh, filled with... Uh, writings, exercise books. And what I discovered was that while they had been in that room alone, they had been teaching themselves to write. And I put them in the boot of the car and took them home. And I couldn't believe this, that these girls to the outside world hadn't spoken and had been dismissed as being zombies, had this rich imaginative life. Interesting. Yeah, and then later they got in trouble for arson and burglary and petty crimes and they were sent to an asylum um where they sort of became even more famous after these crimes because it's a good story to have two creepy twins that are, have a great nickname the silent twins that are now arsonists and stuff yeah unlike the other twin relationships and phenomena we've discussed so far it's at this point things take a dark turn the sisters begin recording in their diaries their relationship and how they're feeling trapped possessed and tortured by the other's existence. Nobody suffers the way I do. Not with us. We become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We feel the irritating, deadly rage come out of our bodies, stinging each other's skin with the husband, yes, with the wife, yes, with the child, yes. But this sister of mine, a dark shadow robbing me of sunlight, is my one only torment. I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Possible or not impossible? Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life? And the most interesting thing is they decided amongst themselves that in order for one of them to live a normal life, the other one had to die. And then suddenly, 
In the middle of the conversation, Jennifer said, Marjorie, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. And she said, because we've decided. So when they were both released from the asylum they were in, one of them dies sort of mysteriously. They just said it was like heart failure. They couldn't find out what it was. And then the other twin went on. Psychosomatic. Yeah, the other twin became basically normal after that. Communicated with people. I believe got the books published and lived like a normal life. Kind of just disappeared from the public eye and no more legal trouble and no nothing. Um, Weird. Which again, an extreme example, but very, very interesting. The concept that one of them had to die so they could both be normal. And the fact that they were so close, so connected, only spoke to each other. Yeah. You know, the thing about breathing, I'll breathe before you breathe. You wake up first tomorrow. It was almost like they were kind of like sharing that consciousness. Though we didn't find much to suggest twin tuition is a legitimate phenomena, we're not the only ones who've looked into the subject. Can twins really read each other's minds, feel each other's pain? Our friend from Nightline, Juju Chang, has been studying the phenomenon of twin tuition. She's here now with a report from what must be the best place in the country to study twins, this high school down in Texas. Absolutely. It's a Guinness record-breaking high school, and it is, in many ways, a living laboratory. Now, twins often tell us those goosebumpy stories of what could be described as a telepathic bond. So we set out to investigate what makes us see things in twins that look more like ESP. Than DNA. The reason Juju refers to this school as a Guinness record breaker is because at the time of this report, J.J. Pierce High School in Richardson, Texas, had the highest number of twins and triplets in a single grade, making it an almost ideal petri dish for the study of twin phenomena. Okay, I'm going to pass these out, and you're going to. So we gave the Pierce High School twins our own test to see just how finely tuned they really are. Don't open your eyes. And the twin whose eyes are open, write down the color that the twin whose eyes are closed is thinking. Oh, uh, purple. Purple? Purple! Eight out of 11 of our pairs guessed the right color. And then we tried numbers. Gentlemen? Uh, three. 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 I got 17. Because? That's our birthday. Number was 17. Nice. Because? It's my football number. Seven out of 11 were successfully able to read their twin's mind. Psychology professor Nancy Siegel is studying what looks to the rest of us like ESP that occurs among twins, but she has a different name for it, tacit coordination. I don't believe it's telepathy. It's not a matter of sending messages. It's a matter of thinking a process through. Because identicals have the same DNA, Siegel says their brains process information identically. They make the same mistakes on tests, they get the same grades. In other words, they actually think alike. But some twin synergy seems to defy scientific explanations. Take seniors Lauren and Ashley. I had mono. But, like, I didn't have any of the symptoms. And, like, Ashley, like, couldn't get out of bed. Like, she couldn't eat. Like, she was like, feeling, I had like, the symptoms, all my symptoms. Had. And I was, like, bouncing off the walls. And time and time again, we found dozens of uncanny stories like that, where one twin is in a car accident and another senses it miles away, or one twin's brother was in the hospital, and the other twin gets agitated and calls to discover he's having an epileptic fit. Is it just coincidence? Is it family folklore? Or is it George telepathy? <laughs> I was really surprised at the findings. I thought that almost all of them would be like, yeah, hell yeah, we have that. And then upon my questioning, it would be like, 
you know, well, I guess we're just really close, which like, you know, you and I are brothers. We're close. I could tell you, you know, you, how you can respond to things. Right. We can kind of communicate like that. Even people who do that with their best friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really thought it would be harder to get twins to admit that they're not that connected. Yeah. So I was actually pretty shocked and a little uh, disappointed that the twin tuition uh, really did not, at least in this very small group of seven sets of twins, uh, really wasn't there. Interesting. And I, I'm willing to take the experiment slightly further, but not, not by much, because it was interesting when you mentioned um, the mother who thought that they had it and she was an outsider, right? Um, she was not one of the twins. Right, she was not one of the twins. That would be the whole other can of worms. Uh, but I asked some people about um, twin tuition and they said, oh, uh, one guy said, oh, my father's a twin and my mother's a twin. So both of his parents have twins. And he hmm. said that there was a time where his father got hurt and his, his twin, his, his uncle, his father's twin um, felt it. And then um, another woman I worked with said that she totally believes they have it. Uh, she didn't really give me any specific stories though. So I don't, I don't know. It's, I guess, again, just like any other individual, it all depends on what their beliefs are. Right. And their definition of a right bond like obviously you're close with your twin yeah but we're looking for that extra right sort of you know but going back to what i was saying about the mother is that, uh, uh, some other people that i asked too they said i know a twin who has that connection with their twin definitely they have it but that's i think exactly like you said that's that's an outsider making that assumption almost right which also is sort of what i did where i assumed like yeah they're twins they're created at the same time they're in the womb they you know that makes perfect sense it would have this yeah and then when you Twins are just like, nah, man, that's not a real thing. Right. So it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I definitely twin vest a lot of time into this. Um, <laughs> so what I want to do, uh, because I refuse to admit defeat, although it might just not exist, I'm not going to tr trick myself. Right. It could be just a fake thing and that's fine. But I want to open it up to uh, the listeners out there. If you are a twin or if you do know some twins and they want to be on the show, talk about it, we can interview them, you know, shoot us an email, thebrosmysterium at gmail.com. Uh, you know, you can tweet us at Mysterium Bros, just because uh, I would like to look into this just a little bit more before we officially kind of close the case on it. And, uh, you know, I I'm interested to see what comes out of it. Yeah, um, it'd be even cooler if we got um, a group of twins who were willing to come in and kind of take like a test almost. Like we can give them like the Zenner cards, you know, like those cards have like the shapes on them. Yes. Show one to one twin and then see if the other twin knows what it is. If they claim to have it. I, I mean, know. what we could also do is find a set of twins and kidnap one of them and, and beat them <laughs> and see if the other one calls them or something and says, are you in trouble? Yeah. That would be the ultimate test and yeah. possibly some jail time. Yeah, possibly, possibly. But anything in the name oh, of science. Yes, right. We're willing to take it to the next level. Well, we do what it takes to get to the truth here on the Brothers Mysterium. We will not be kidnapping any twins, so fear not if you're a twin out there <laughs> in the tri-state area. You are safe. But uh, if you do know of someone, if you have that connection, definitely please reach out to us. Let us know. We'd love to hear about it, and we'd love to dig deeper into Twin Tuition. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, nice view. This is the uh, Brothers Mysterium going to a local haunt. We are currently rolling up on the Devil's Tower in Alpine, New Jersey. 
What you're hearing now is audio from a trip Eric and I took to the Devil's Tower. Not to be confused with the giant landform out in Wyoming, the Devil's Tower we visited is an old stone clock tower in Alpine, New Jersey. Whoa, look at this castle. Yeah, some, yeah, a lot of the houses around here look like castles. Though it now sits right in the middle of a housing development filled with mansions, it's actually become quite infamous over the years as a haunted location, mostly because of the legend of its tragic history, but also due in part to its notoriety as a possible hangout spot for the devil himself. For most teenagers raised in Bergen County, traveling to the famed haunted tower is almost a rite of passage. It's not long after you hit the legal age to drive in New Jersey that you find yourself bravely headed up to the tower to put the legend and the devil to the test. So we started going to Devil's Tower around 2000. That was probably around the time that we all got our licenses. And, you know, taking a ride down to Alpine was like the big thing. Uh, the first time I went to the Devil's Tower was with my brother, actually, years ago, before I even had my license. My brother had his license. So I've been to the Alpine Devil's Tower probably 10 years ago. I was a freshman in high school, and a couple of the upperclassmen took us to kind of spook us. I just remember, like, you bring your girlfriend up there in high school and stuff, and it was just to scare the crap out of him, you know? I just got my driver's license in, in high school, so I just turned 17, and it was that October, and we are all looking to do something to kind of scare us around Halloween. We'd always talked about the weird New Jersey type things, and we decided, let's finally do one. We were going to go over to the, the Devil's Tower, which was right by us. So what makes this spot so appealing to teenagers looking for a thrill? The obvious answer is its fascinating and menacing appearance. If you're into architecture, it's definitely something you should check out. It's a, it's a beautiful Gothic Revival stone building. But hidden deep in the stone giant's past is its mysterious backstory. They told me the story that a woman had died and supposedly the tower was haunted. They say that the rich man's wife decided to kill herself after she saw him fornicating with somebody else while she was up in the tower and she leapt to her death. I think she found out he was cheating on her or something like that. She ended up killing herself by jumping off the tower. I started learning a little bit of the history of the place after uh, I went there for the first time. And uh, my dad actually told me, you know, the story because him and his buddies used to go there back in the early 70s and kind of do the same thing. But there were no mansions built around, you know, there was just, it was just a, you know, giant stone building in the woods. But a hundred years ago or so, all the along the cliffs of Alpine, there were these huge um, estates, more or less. And uh, you know, this one family, suppose. Well, the story goes, there was a it was a Cuban sugarcane magnate. He had a huge estate there. That sugar magnate was Manuel Rianda. Rianda was born in 1854 and made his fortune as a sugar dealer. In 1904, he bought an estate in Alpine. He built the tower there for you know, I guess for the purposes of you know seeing the river. I mean, I really know how good of a view you got, but, you know, that's what they said he built it for. To build this tower, Rianda commissioned Charles Rollinson Lamb, the architect who built the famed Dewey Arch that stood in Manhattan's Madison Square Park in 1899. Rollinson completed the stone tower in 1910. The tower included an iron elevator and was flanked by a library and a chapel. The path to the tower was lined with cedars and there was even a man-made lake on his property. The story goes, uh, his wife was up on top of the tower one day, and she saw him 
walking the uh, the grounds with another woman, and you know, I guess you know, there must have been an affair going on, and she was so distraught she actually threw herself off the top of the tower. He later came and found her body and everything, and that was the whole beginning of this story. And they said ever since then there was some kind of, you know, there was all kinds of paranormal activity happening. So, not only does the tower have a gruesome origin to back its chilling appearance, but it also features a classic, if you do this, then this will happen to you, type of urban legend spin which apparently kids have been attempting for decades. You're supposed to drive around the, the tower three times backwards, and if you do that, uh, a ghost is supposed to appear at the top of the tower, or at least that's the story that we had heard. Supposedly, you were supposed to look up to the window at the top and see the ghost of the woman who supposedly jumped off of it back in the day. And if you drove around a certain number of times, she would come out and you would see her ghost. They say the story, if you go there and you drive around the, uh, or you walk around the, the tower a few times, I don't know how many times it is, but they say that her apparition will, you know, it'll arise and, or, you know, the devil is supposed to come out, whatever the case. If you drive around it, Three times, you will see the devil himself appear atop the tower. And uh, it's been local lore. We're from around here. Three times in reverse. Are we being followed? I don't think so. Yeah, you gotta go in reverse. Uh, three times in reverse. We're driving around it now. It's never been clear to the locals how the story of Harriet Rianda's supposed suicide links up to the idea of the devil haunting the tower. We got onto Route 9W, which leads right up to where the... the the ultimate street was and it's all dark and a bunch of trees and we're thinking all right this is going to be pretty cool this is going to be pretty scary we're looking for like the turnoff i think the night we went up it was close to halloween a dark dark night carload of friends you know how it is all excited to have your license want to go someplace creepy cheap thrill and then all of a sudden we hit like this big beautiful multi-million dollar uh, housing community turn in and that's where it is in this big roundabout surrounded by these multi-million dollar homes with these beautifully manicured lawns. You know, big houses, little community, but just this giant gothic tower in the middle. Um, it was in Rio Vista where there are these beautiful homes. So I didn't think I was in danger when I was going. You kind of feel like you're in Hollywood or something like that. It's, it's really not an eerie feeling, but, it, you know, a hundred years ago, what that must have been like, it must have been pretty cool. Um, it must have been pretty creepy. We're immediately pretty disappointed, but we're like, hey, let's try it out. But I was definitely a little bit scared and also excited. And we went through the motions, drove around it backwards two or three times. I didn't actually end up getting out of the car, but we did go in reverse a couple of times and forward a couple of times. I had just gotten my license, so I wasn't the greatest uh, reverse driver. And it's in a, a roundabout, so it's just a big circle. So I definitely hit the curb once or twice trying to get around. But finally, we made it. We got all the way around. And we get out of the car, looking around. And absolutely nothing happened. Nothing ended up happening. And didn't see anything. We never really got any, uh, you know paranormal vibes or anything like that so we all just got back in the car and took off yeah maybe next time
Despite our best efforts, we were never able to find anyone who actually claimed to have seen the devil or the ghost of Harriet. We did, however, learn about a different presence that often emerges after eager summoners have circumnavigated the tower. You know, most of the times we went there and tried to do that, the cops always show up and they tell you to leave and they bust your balls. And You know, you could only drive around it so many times in reverse before you have to get out of there, before a possible patrol car comes around and starts handing out tickets or citations. We also discovered that with the lack of supernatural happenings, some have gone to great lengths to fake the appearance of a ghost in the tower. In the top window, there was... A skull up there. It, I remember it was oxidized. It was like it was green, so it must have been made out of copper or something like that. And I, I don't know who put it up there. And you know, I haven't been there in ten years. I don't know if it's still there, or you know, I'm sure many other people saw it. Supposedly, someone put like climbed the tower and put a piece of cloth in the window at one point. I never saw it, but. You know, you hope that you'd see something. You'd hope that it was true, the legends. But in reality, you know, I think if, if anybody claims that they saw someone in the window at the top, it was probably just a manifestation of their imagination. Like they were going there wanting to see something. So, yeah, I mean, but if anybody uh, is ever up in northern Jersey... It's definitely worthwhile taking a trip there. It's it's a really pretty building, and, you know, it's got a pretty cool vibe, so definitely check it out. As is the case with all things, absence of evidence doesn't necessarily count as evidence of absence. In other words, it's impossible to ever prove something doesn't actually exist, because it could always be that the proof just hasn't been discovered yet. And in this case, we only spoke to a handful of the 925,000 people that live in Bergen County. For now, the appearing ghost or devil idea remains unresolved. We then decided to focus our investigation on the tower's legend and Harriet's tragic suicide, because just like all legends, it's often difficult to tell which elements of the story are completely fake and which ones have a truthful basis in history. So from this point on, we asked ourselves a different question. Did the tower really become a bitterly eternal lamentation of the Rianda's grim and tragic relationship? Or has it always been nothing more than a rich man's attempt to get a sweet-ass view of the Hudson River? Answering this question could easily help us discover the truth behind the ghost stories. If the legend is false, it's more than likely that the haunting it's connected to is also false. One of my biggest hobbies is genealogy. I love researching family trees, and this involves pouring through a lot of death certificates, cemetery records, birth certificates, marriage records. Sure. And sometimes uh, I, you know, just look through these records for hours and hours and hours. And sometimes when I'm searching databases of record collections, I get bored and I, I drift away from the usual, you know, family that I'm researching. And I'll just search random things. And one day it just kind of hit me. uh, Let me search for Harriet Rianda from the Devil's Tower. And lo and behold, there was a certificate that matched her name. Interesting. Um, These online databases don't give you all the information. So sometimes you may find a name that matches someone else, but it might not be that person. After discovering a death certificate that was a potential match for Harriet Rianda... 
Eric headed to the Hall of Records in downtown Manhattan. The fact that the death certificate was from New York, that was enough to suggest to me that the suicide story was not true because obviously she was supposed to have died at the tower in New Jersey. So the death certificate would have been issued in New Jersey. Makes sense. So I get off at my subway stop. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. I arrive at Chamber Street outside the Hall of Records, a massive, beautiful building. Uh, I walk in through the front door. I have to go through security. They go through my backpack. I have to go through a metal detector. Um, but once I'm clear of that, uh, I go straight, make a quick right, and then make another quick right through a big set of doors. And there I am in the Hall of Records. Now, the Hall of Records is pretty much just shelves and shelves and shelves of microfilm, which has prints of these records on them. And once you pull the reel that has your certificate included in the microfilm, you take it over to a reel machine that projects the image onto a, a screen. It's very similar to those overhead projectors that a lot of you probably used in school, where your teacher would literally write on the transparent piece of paper and it would project up onto the screen in the front of the room. So uh, I pull the microfilm tape that has the information that I need. I go over to one of these real machines, load it up, start floating through the uh, certificates, and you can kind of fast forward and skip and check and see what certificate number you're on, and then you kind of fast forward again, and then you check and see what certificate number you're on. Go a little slower as you start getting closer to the, to the number you need. And I was in, you know, range of Harriet's certificate, so I started pushing the button very slowly so I could work my way to it. Um, I got to the certificate that was one number before it and pushed the button that would bring up Harriet's certificate. Right as the screen switches over to Harriet's certificate, the machine goes black. The bulb inside shuts down and the machine has no power suddenly. And I was like, no way. No way. Tell me, like, there's some kind of presence that's trying to prevent me from uncovering this mystery. All of a sudden, I hear a lady say, oops, sorry. So I look next to me. Turns out the woman at the machine next to mine had kicked the plug under the table. So I plug the machine back in and bam, there's Harriet's certificate. To make sure we eliminated any gray areas and to ensure that we were completely clear in our understanding of the cause of Harriet's death, we asked someone with a background in biology and medicine to put all the medical jargon into regular English for us. As usual, this brought us to Amy, Eric's fiance. So I have Harriet's death certificate. Um, and in the column for cause of death, uh, it says date of death was May 18th, 1922. Um, I hereby certify that the foregoing particulars are correct as near as can be ascertained. I further certify that I attended the deceased from 1913 until May 18th, 1922. I last saw her alive on the 17th day of May in 1922. The death occurred on this date stated above at 6 a.m. And the cause of death was as follows. And written in, it uh, says the cause of death was cerebral thrombosis, which is a stroke. And then under that, he put that um, the duration 
was one month and 14 days, which I take to mean that, um, you know, this woman had a stroke and a month and 14 days later she passed away from, you know, from the damage from the stroke. Next, it talks about contributing factors to the main cause of death. So things that contributed to her having a stroke. Uh, and it was arteriosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, plaque buildup in the arteries. So after reviewing the death certificate, do you see anything that suggests that she could have possibly died from falling from a great height? No. The discovery of the death certificate also led us to discover another fact that greatly contradicted the known story. After searching the address on the death certificate, I found an obituary from the New York Times dated May 22nd, 1922, and it says, Rianda, on May 17th, Harriet, beloved wife of Manuel Rianda, at her temporary residence, 175 West 58th Street, funeral services at the Church of Our Lady of Lords. So, that proves that she wasn't even living at the tower at the time she died. There you go. The Brothers Mysterio. I think, and we're not going to tell you who or what to believe, but in my mind, this myth has busted the local legend of Devil's Tower. I... Well, we have proof that this woman lived a nice long life at the time, 66 years old, died of natural causes, did not commit suicide uh, by throwing herself off the tower, does not haunt the tower. Her ghost, I don't believe, is there at all. I'm sure people are still going to claim that the devil is there anyway, which right. feel free to do that. But in my mind, this solves the case. And uh, I'm happy in saying that the devil's tower, nothing too weird is going on there besides kids loitering. Yeah, I mean, this definitely closes the uh, closes the casket on the wife suicide element of it. Nicely of course, said. <laughs> what? Nicely said. Oh, thank you. But uh, still, people are going to argue. Yeah, like well, the devil's still probably there. But yeah, like we said, uh, wife suicide definitely a no go. Uh, as far as the devil stuff goes, I spent a lot of time in that tower. Never once did anything happen. And actually, this just came to me as I was, you know, listening to that clip. Uh, one of my friends actually urinated on this tower too. Oh, that's not a good move. No, but nothing. You know, if they, come on, if you're if you're gonna uh, provoke on, a ghost, pee on the devil's house. Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna provoke something something terrible to happen to you, like in like a horror movie, that's like an automatic death sentence. Like if you pee on someone's grave or something oh, yeah. like that, if you do that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. <laughs> oh no. But uh, yeah, I mean, as we always say, people are gonna believe what they want to believe. We're not trying to tell you what to believe, but we hope that uh, us going that extra mile, finding the death certificate, having some proof, at least, as I said, in my own mind, shuts the case on this one. Devil's Tower, not haunted, nothing going on. Cool place to go, take a picture at, but you're not going to see anything paranormal. Next time on The Brothers Mysterium. The smell is directly linked to a supernatural cause. Everyone smelled it. You could bring up smoke smell to anyone in my family right now and they'll immediately say oh we remember you used to smell those ghost smells all the time we're coming down the staircase and we smell this seafood aroma from downstairs that one sort of a mystery what was going on nobody knows n-o-s-e smell joke 
there was no reason for the smell to be there. He would walk around the neighborhood uh, in the evening or very early in the morning smoking a cigar. Always smoke cigars. And like when so many people experience similar things, it makes me wonder. The Twin Speak clip comes from John Pierre Gorin's documentary, Poto and Cabango, which was released in 1980. The clip about womb twins comes from www.wombtwinsurvivor.com. The Jim Twins clip comes from The Secret Life of Twins, which was a BBC documentary that came out in 1999 by Robert Winston. Juju Chang's report on twin telepathy is from ABC News' Nightline. Marjorie Wallace's report on the Gibbons sisters comes from NPR and PRX's Snap Judgment, the episode Unforgiven. For contributing to our Devil's Tower section, we just want to thank Travis, Julianne, Mike, Charlie, Matt, and Tony. The song you hear playing in the background is Elegy One by Franz Liszt, as performed by Moro Tortorelli. As always, additional voice work provided by Gwen and Dan Hudson. Our theme song is done by The Nevergrin. If you want to drop us a line, you can get in touch with us at thebrothersmysterium at gmail.com. Check us out on Twitter at Mysterium Bros, or hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash thebrothersmysterium. And as always, thank you for listening to us. <laughs>